Happy Saturday, bingers? That's weird to say, but it's totally worth it. I've got a special surprise for you. The true crime binge concept was actually born on my other show, Truth and Justice. When the pandemic shut us down, I spent season nine interviewing my fellow true crime podcasters. And what I'd like to do is get all of those interviews into one place here at True Crime Binge. So, over the next few months, every Saturday, I'm going to be releasing two bonus episodes of True Crime Binge. These are going to be interviews that I conducted during Season 9 of Truth and Justice. So if you came here from that audience, you've probably already heard them, although they're totally worth a second listen. And if you're new here, then you get to hear from three new true crime podcasters every week. Moving forward, I'll be releasing a new episode every Wednesday, and then two bonus re-releases of Truth and Justice interviews on Saturdays. And for our first bonus episode, I have one of my very good friends. You've already heard from his co-host, Nick, and today I have the other host of the True Crime Garage podcast. He coined the phrase, don't be a douche canoe. I present to you, The Captain. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Captain, thanks for joining me today, buddy. Yes, it's always good to talk to you, my friend. Good to hear from you. And uh, today we're going to talk about a case that's really interesting and intriguing to me. And I want to have you kind of break down the case for us. And we're going to talk some theories and things like that. It's the disappearance of Brian Schaefer. But before we get to that, I've, I've got a couple questions I think a lot of my listeners want to know. Can you tell us a little bit, Captain, what is your background and how did that background end up landing you making a, one of the most popular true crime podcasts in the world? Well, I was uh, a broke musician and I was laid off and, and Nick was laid off at the same time. And we used to hang out in his garage and drink beer, talk music, talk sports. But we always ended up talking crime because he wanted to talk crime with somebody, but he didn't have anybody really to, you know, just let's talk serial killers okay let's do it um right <laughs> and my father was a detective and so we just have always kind of talked about cases or i'd hear about a case in the news and, and call him and ask him questions about it so but i went to school for audio engineering and i used to produce records and toured as a musician and so when it was like okay well let's let's just try to record a podcast for fun and yeah, at first it wasn't easy and it sounded bad, but eventually it was like, oh, well, I can actually use my schooling to make our show sound better and create music for our show. And where a lot of shows have maybe a music director or they're paying uh, a company to make the music, like everything from our show is created by me or Nick. Uh, all the music is created each week. It's created just for that case. So just a couple of unique things I think we do compared to some other shows. But yeah, but it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, you guys, you guys have an awesome production. And, and you guys got started about the same time that we got started, which was kind of before true crime podcasts were really cool. What, what year did you guys start in 2015? 
Yeah, we're a little bit after you because I, I was a fan of uh, Serial Dynasty. Oh, that's right. You, it, it, you know, I just had a flashback to the first time we met at the, uh, the first Crime Con. Yes, I, I had a good friend. Uh, so we started the show, and then I started meeting some people, and I, I had a good friend, Jess, that was a huge fan of yours. And she talked about you so much that I think I just became like a, a fan of yours just through her. You know, like I didn't know right. much about you, but she just always talked so nicely about you. And I was like, oh, I can't wait to meet him. <laughs> this is going to be awesome. But yeah, we met at that first crime con, and now I feel like we're like uh, the OGs or something of the true crime world. I know it's 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 weird huh cuz we you know, when we go to CrimeCon you start seeing these new faces and of course you know there's there's thousands of podcasts doing kind of what we do popping up all the time it's weird to think that something that cuz you at least had some audio training I know I was a fireman I had no audio training that we both kind of started this podcast on a whim and now we're kind of the the old salty guys that have been doing it for a long time yeah so in that regard what does what made you decide there had to have been a conversation between you and Nick where you decided let's let's make this into a podcast. Well, so I would listen to shows because I traveled every weekend, you know, a few hours a week, and I was actually at Thanksgiving dinner with my family, and I was just saying I'm so bored traveling, and one of my cousins was like, "You should check out podcasts," and I was like, "What the heck's a podcast?" So I, I googled podcast and the first thing <laughs> the first thing that popped up was adam adam carolla so i'd listen to carolla and then nick always listened to you know howard stern and stuff like that but then he got into like true murder and so sometimes he'd send me these episodes to listen to and so i just remember being in his garage and he's like we should do a podcast and, and like he kind of thought it out and i was like yeah okay what will we talk about <laughs> he said right true crime and i was like oh no that seems depressing but then he like had all these ideas we'll we'll have a beer of the week i'm like how does a beer of the week make sense with true crime <laughs> right but then he started telling me i i have catchphrases i want to i want to end every show with don't litter i'm like what does don't litter have anything to do with true crime <laughs> and so that so then we just decided that, well let's record like a handful of episodes just to see how it goes for fun and just to see if we could do it. And we recorded like, I think it was like six of them. And then we got in this huge fight <laughs> and uh, we didn't talk for a couple of weeks. And then he called me up and he's like, man, I, I really think we have something. We should release it. Cause I don't think we, I mean, we might've done like 20 some, you know, we could have ended up doing 20 some episodes. We never talked about actually, making it public we just wanted to see if we could record it for ourselves you know so you guys didn't have at the beginning did you have aspirations of you said you were a broke musician were you guys hoping to make money off of it or was it more just just kind of a fun project well at first it was just let's just see if we can do it can we even talk for an hour and have fun talking about a case and i remember nick saying if i could make 500 dollars a year that would be awesome. Right. And I was like, that, this seems like a lot of work for, <laughs> for $500 a year. And then we, you know, like I said, he was laid off and I was laid off. And then it just became like, well, what if we could just make enough to buy? Like we, 
we both were, were really practical. So we just have regular cars or regular trucks, nothing special. And um, I was like, but what if we could make $500 a month? That could just go to us like both driving a cool car. He's like, that's right. We'll make $500 a month and we'll both drive cool cars. <laughs> and then we started making that $500 a month and neither one of us like drive that cool of a car. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know. it's it's been such an interesting period. You know, we, we've kind of, you know, we obviously we weren't serial. We got in after that. So podcasts were starting to take off like this. but. It was in its infancy, and you know, when I started Truth and Justice, which used to be the Serial Dynasty, you yeah. know, it was just something I wanted to do. Have you know, see if I, it's kind of like you guys, see if I can do it, and see if there's people you know that want to talk about this case with me. And and now it's kind of the and then and then it turned into a career, kind of like it did with you guys. But then now the it's it, it, that's all shifted. Like now it's become so popular that. You know, I have people reach out to me all the time, like, hey, I have this idea. I want to start a podcast and I'm hoping to, you know, quit my job and, and make a career out of it like you did. Everybody's kind of going, trying to go that route. And now it's become much, much, much more difficult to do it. Yeah. I think it's a lot harder to get traction because people have their shows that they listen to. You know, I know a lot of fans of ours that listen to your show and they might listen to My Favorite Murder or they listen to Gen Y. So it's like, they have their plate full. So when a new right. show com- comes along, they're like, unless you have some special thing about you, maybe you're a crime writer or maybe you're a former detective, maybe you have some unique voice that you can add to the space. I think it's really hard for new shows to get traction. I, I mean, we didn't start making $500 the first month. I don't remember how long it took to even, you know, see a, a dollar for the show. But it was, I know it was a long time. Like, you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. Uh, when people, you know, I've had people, you know, make jokes, say, oh, well, I'm going to start a show tomorrow and, and start making money. I'm like, well, how about you just do it for a year, once a week for a year, and don't expect any money? And if you can get to that end of the year, well, then maybe you're doing it for the right reasons. Cause most of the people that I know that are, have been successful with the podcast they didn't get into it for to to make a career out of it it's like well maybe this will be a cool hobby right because it's easy easy to get burned out you know when you're with the you know you and i know doing it for a living the deadlines are under all the time and you know the the constant work so yeah i think that's a good good advice if they can make it for a year and they still are enjoying doing it even without making money then then they probably got something yeah and i think the thing too is like like you were saying about getting burnt out, you know, we'll get done recording for the week and I'll be like, man, I don't want to, I don't want to hear another thing about a case. And sometimes, right. sometimes that night, uh, you know, that night I'm like, I'm burnt. And then I made a pizza and I'm flipping through the channels. And next thing you know, I'm watching some 2020 and I'm taking notes going, oh, this is a fascinating case. I need to add this to the list. I, I need to learn more about this. So. It it makes no sense because it's I I think there's just um it's it's one of those um obsessions and you know you just can't help yourself which is okay though right and and that's what, you know same thing it's a passion for me I, you go through that process every week the as you said Nat, Nick calls it which is this I I think it's a good analogy it's like a rat wheel where you gotta you know, research, write, record, edit, put it out. And then the next week you start it all over again. But 
every week, you know, like for what we normally do, or we're taking a deep dive into certain elements of a case. It never takes long for me to get reading before you get, you're hooked back into it and you can't wait to do more and can't wait to put out the episodes. Yeah. And, and so this one today, I actually, I have one more, one more question okay. uh, about you before we get into the Brian Schaefer case, but you are affectionately known throughout the world as the captain. Yeah. How did that nickname come to be? Well, it, it's really funny because, uh, the last couple of crime cons, I got so tired of people going, uh, you know, they'd be like, I'm Jessica. And I, and then I, I got so tired of going, I'm the captain. I felt like really <laughs> like, I felt like that was just douchey. And so I just started saying my real name. And I also always said, if somebody that emails me or they send me a direct message, I'll, I'll tell you my real name. I'm not. Um, but at first when we started the show, just for fun, I was like, well, if it becomes something that we release, I probably shouldn't use my real name because I, I used to teach uh, kids, uh, special needs kids. I taught uh, guitar lessons. I taught after school programs. And they're really careful about what you're putting out on social media or what you're putting out to the public. So I was like, well, I can't use my name because I would like to get back into that. And at the time, I was volunteering at, at uh, inner city libraries. And helping kids learn how to use uh, Mac computers and and do photography or record music, and what so I just was like, there was an Elton John record that I borrowed from Nick, and I was giving it back to him, and we're sitting there about ready to record, and he's like, okay, well, what's your name? And there was just this title, Captain Fantastic, and I was like, okay, well, I'll just be Captain Fantastic. <laughs> and then I then I was like, well, I don't think I can be Captain Fantastic. So I was like, oh, I'll be Captain Fantastico. And I think we said that like maybe two episodes. And then I was like, we have to drop the Fantastico. It's that's so stupid. <laughs> but what's funny is me and Nick have a really good friend that is known to every. Well, he used to be known as the captain. His nickname eventually changed. But so it's just funny when like my friends are out at a bar and somebody recognizes my voice and then they'll come over. Are you the captain? And my friends are always like, he's not, the he's nobody calls him that, you know? <laughs> right. um, the funny thing about that though, was the place I was interning the the library. They're like, we have a couple of positions available. We'd like for you to apply. And I, I moved back from Indiana. So I had no job. I was just volunteering my time. And I was like, sweet money career and the first question was so you're the captain on the true crime garage <laughs> podcast and i never got a call back they never told me if i they didn't even tell me that uh the job was filled or anything i just never got a call back and i'm like oh my this podcast is going to ruin my life and i'm <laughs> just going to do it for fun well i think as it turns out uh choosing the uh the the captain and the podcast life was probably the best decision for you. Well, yeah, and, and it, but the funny thing is, normally when I meet somebody and I tell them my name, they kind of like look at me in disgust. Like, I, and then I had a couple ladies go, "You know what? I'm just going to call you the captain." I'm like, "You can call me whatever you want," you know. <laughs> well, I I I I know your real name, but I you should know that I have you stored in my phone still as the captain. Yeah, I mean that makes sense, and so. Uh, <laughs> You know, but it's funny because uh, my dad, for example, will constantly 
hey, Captain. I'm like, <laughs> so you're going to adopt this uh, fake nickname? He's like, oh, you're the captain. So, All right. Well, let's slide you into the captain mode, and let's talk a little bit about the case of Brian Schaefer. Uh, you know, as, as I, I mentioned uh, in our intro here, you know, during this 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 time or during COVID, when we can't get record requests, we're doing these kind of one-off episodes, and I'm trying to do a combination of cases that my listeners have told me they're interested in, they want to hear about, as well as cases that fascinate me that I want to hear more about. And and Brian Schaefer is is one of the latter. Uh, you guys covered it on True Crime Garage a while back. Can you can you give us start out just kind of give us the the beats of the case? Yeah, so we're we're Columbus, Ohio boys. And the campus of Ohio State, is it's a big deal. College game days, well, a lot of it has been uh, revived starting in the early 2000s. It was kind of grungy, made you feel like kind of like Seattle. You know, you'd be walking down the street and every, any post that you can post on anywhere uh, had flyers for bands and there was rock bars everywhere and there was little dive bars everywhere. Well, this group called Campus Partners were coming in and tearing down these little tiny dirty bars and building these complexes. Well, in the early 2000s, they built this complex off of 11th Avenue, and there was a bar called the Ugly Tuna Saluna, which you had to go up some escalators, go to a platform, and then walk into this bar. And the bar was basically a square it had a balcony that you could go outside um, for people to smoke and drink outside on, on the balcony. But anywhere in that bar, you pretty it was a square, so you pretty much could see anybody. And in the start of a uh, spring break, it was uh, March thirtieth or March thirty first, two thousand six. Brian and his buddy meet up, and he's a, a medical student at Ohio State, and. They go out for some drinks. They start at the Ugly Tuna. They have a couple drinks, but I think there's nothing happening there. So they're like, they're like, let's check out some other bars. Well, there's some other new bars in our arena district. So they get down to the arena district, which wasn't far, a few miles. Go to a couple bars there, have some drinks there. He ends up making a call to his girlfriend. Him and his girlfriend, for spring break, they're going to go on a trip together. She, I think she was a medical student as well. And so he calls and leaves her a nice little message, you know, hey, honey, I'm thinking about you, you know, you're so gorgeous, blah, 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 can't wait to spend the week with you, because she was up um, north visiting her parents before she went on this trip. So they come back to the Ugly Tuna that night, and it's uh, Brian, his friend Clint, and their friend Meredith, and they're going up the escalators, and there's video footage of them going up these escalators. They get into Ugly Tuna, they start drinking. Then Brian's seen coming out of the bar on that little platform where the escalator would take you up. And you can see him on video footage, and he's kind of seems like he's tipsy or at least drunk. And he's flirting with these two girls, or at least talking to these two girls. Around closing time, there was a cover band playing that, that, that night. Around closing time, he tells his friends, Hey, I'm going to go talk to the band. He leaves. They are now outside on the platform. I don't think the bar was letting Clint or Meredith back in. So they start like tech. I don't know if they're texting or calling Brian, but they're trying to make contact with Brian. He's not answering. So after about five minutes or so, they're like, 
well, we got to go. So they go down the escalator, go down the court. Um, there was a good courtyard, go into the garage, get into their car, take off and, and leave for the night, leaving their friend behind thinking, well, maybe he was just talking to some girls or maybe he left because he didn't live that far from this bar anyways. Well, then he just went missing. And, you know, the, after the first day or so of him not being in contact with anybody, people started getting worried. They started searching. Well, Monday, when he was supposed to hit this flight to go on vacation with his girlfriend, he doesn't show up. That's when it got real serious. But the short of the story is that he went into a bar and we have video footage of him going into the bar. But as w what the police say and what the FBI says is there's zero footage of him leaving the bar. That's the part that is so baffling to me is you have a place where there is actually, and there was quite a few cameras in the bar, weren't there? Yeah. Uh, well, what's weird is the whole complex that was being built, it wasn't, it wasn't completely built at the time. And so that's what kind of makes this whole thing a mystery because some security guards say, yes, there was a bunch of security cameras up and they were all working. And I've talked to other security guards, and they're like, yeah, we had some of the cameras up, but some of them weren't working. So you hear these, you know, both both sides of the, the, the tale, you know. Right. And, and there were, there was only one way in and out of the bar, right? Or, or was there, there was a second entrance that went to, like, out into a construction site? Well, there, yeah, there was, there was one exit for customers. So everybody thought, if you're going to see him exit, it's going to be down that escalator. And there was, a, and that's where the working camera was, where he was spotted going in, spotted at 1.55 a.m., where he was standing outside talking to the girls and goes back in, but then he never comes back out that door. Right. But what's interesting is, you know, this, this story, because I played in bands, but just if you went to bars around town, once he went missing, he was talked about a lot in bars. And even to this day, if you go, hey, you know that missing Ohio State kid? They're like, oh, yeah. And, and everybody has a story. They found him, right? Or I heard he went to, you know, Puerto Rico. <laughs> you know, like everybody has a version of what happened to him. And I'm like, no, he's just nobody knows what happened to him. It's, it's a mystery. Which is strange, but one of the things that I've uncovered by going through the case with a lot of people is, one, there was two exits. And now, uh, you know, the police will now state on record that they have footage of the back exit way. Now they claim that he's not on that footage either. But for a long time, they didn't even talk about having the actual footage for the back uh, hallway. I've never seen it. They used to play the footage of the escalator footage all the time on the news here. And I believe at one point, uh, Columbus PD set up a website that you could watch closing time. It was like 30 minutes, you know, closing time as they herded everybody out of the building. But on that escalator platform, which is kind of scary, is you see all these people leaving down the escalator, and there's three Columbus PD right there. On the night that he disappeared? Yeah, on the platform, watching the watching the kids go out of the out of the bar. So once we found out that there was a back entrance way and that there was video footage, uh, we've requested this footage. We've never received it, 
I wanted to send it, you know, you worked with a, a production team on your, you know, amazing coverage of West Memphis 3. I wanted people that worked in that field to take a look at the, the footage. Mm-hmm. They're trained to see, oh, in this shot, your, your top button was buttoned. We got to make sure it was buttoned in this next one. Get people that know what they're, they're looking for to, to look at this footage. But, they, but, but also, like, just some weird stuff happened. He goes missing. Everything on Google is about Brian Schaefer. Well, because it's through Ohio State campus, they don't want the first thing when you Google Ohio State campus to be about a missing kid. So all that stuff gets shut down real quick. Then it starts becoming hard to find any information about the case. And then the, the bar itself, the Ugly Tuna Saluna, had, you know, like online, you know, uh, this band is playing this night. These are the drink specials, like your online schedule. And to this day, you can find, you know, months before then and months after, but you can't find the calendar of that month that he went missing. And it, it's like, why are you trying to hide that? And for years, nobody knew who the band was. And I, I'd be playing in gigs and I'd say, hey, man, do you know anybody that played the Ugly Tuna? Oh, yeah, yeah, so-and-so's band played. I'm like, did they play the night Brian went missing? Oh, no, I don't, I don't think so. And it took years. Um, and it was actually a guy that did a little, uh, did some episodes on the case. His, his name is Nicholas West. He contacted me and said, I think the name of the band was Rock House, which happened to be a popular cover band in town, but also happened to be three guys that I, I grew up playing with. So I was able to call those guys and say, you know, get some more information that was never released before. So what did you find out from them? Did they remember, you know, this, his friend Clint said, didn't he say he was, he was going back in he, or said he wanted to go talk to the band? Yeah. So, you know, there's two stories. One was I need to go to the restroom or I'm going to go talk to the band. Brian was a huge guitar fan. He, he was also, you know, a guitar player. I don't think he was a, the greatest guitar player, but I think he was trying and it was definitely a hobby of his. And he had a Pearl Jam tattoo on his arm, really into Pearl Jam. And my buddy in Rock House was probably one of the best guitar players in Columbus. So for him to, all night, he's a little drunk, flirting with some girls, but he keeps seeing this awesome guitar player. At some point, he was probably like, hey, I want to go talk to that guy. Now, my buddy that played guitar does not remember talking to Brian that night, but does remember that the band had probably maybe, let's say, 15, 20 people there to watch them, and they're all going to go hang out afterwards. And one of the girls uh, got into a, a confrontation with a, a drunk guy at closing time. Now, nobody in that group can confirm that it was Brian, but they can confirm that it was a male and that, you know, a, a skinny male, drunk, and she just, you know, I think he was kind of being handsy or whatever he was being. And she kind of, you know, said, what the heck are you doing, man? But what I can confirm from the guitar player, the, the bass player and the drummer, is they all three left through the back entranceway or exit way. That's where they took their gear. But all their friends as well left through the back exit. And 
multiple uh, employees of the bar left through the back exit. So is it possible that Brian left with them through the back exit? I, I believe it's so. Now there's no, we have no solid proof of that, but I think it's less of a mystery. I think when the, I think when there were, when people talked about this story before, it was a man walks into a bar and there was no way he could have ever been not seen on camera, you know, leaving the bar. Right. But well, well, what do you think about the fact that the police are saying now? So they're officially saying now they do have footage of the back door and he never went out it. Well, they, yeah, they claim that he's just not on it. And again, I think like it, it makes me question how much footage they have from inside the bar. Because if they have footage of some form of inside the bar, can't we track him? Isn't there a way to track him through the video? Yeah, it seems weird because what I was reading was that there were several, like you said, maybe that's not all accurate, but it seemed like there were several working cameras inside the bar. And it seems like, why do you only have him outside? Why don't you see what he did when he went back inside? Yeah. And um, it's just so interesting to see how the story has changed year after year. Just like, for example, uh, you know, so Clint and Meredith left and everybody has kind of suspected that you know maybe there was some foul play and that his friend was involved like why why would you let your friend why would you leave your friend in the bar i've totally left my friends in a bar well he he didn't live that many blocks away from the bar Mm -hmm. and also you saw your friend that has a girlfriend now when he went missing everybody said that was her fiance they were never engaged and then everybody said, well, he was going to get engaged. He's going to propose when they're on their honeymoon. Or not the honeymoon, but they're on their vacation. He never bought a ring. We have no evidence that he was going to buy a ring. So it's just a, a narrative that was created. Mm-hmm. And even like when people said, oh, he looks drunk on film. His dad got mad about that. Oh, he wasn't drunk. He wasn't. And then. This girl, which has been very nice, uh, talk, has talked to me multiple times. She ended up uh, putting, I think, her number in his phone. So exchanging numbers with Brian. And she was one of the girls that was out on the platform that he came out and was talking to um, a couple minutes before closing time. And I think, I believe the story for that was he was supposed to go home with them and you know, they kind of looked for him, didn't see him, and then they went to their car and waited for just a little bit, and he never kind of sh- he never showed up. So then they left. Well, when you say that story, you know, uh, his father has since passed away, but instead of taking that as evidence, his dad would just be like, "My son didn't flirt with these girls. They must right. be drunk. They must be drunk. They must be whores." And you're like, "What? Well, wait, wait a second. We have evidence. This video footage of your son stumbling around. We have his friend Clint and his friend Meredith saying he was drinking heavily. So, but I think that happens a lot of times in, in a murder case or a missing person case where they're like, "This guy would light up the room," you know. Right. This guy was. This guy was friendly to everybody. This guy never overdrank. So the story has kind of kept evolving over time. Do you know when you spoke with your uh, your your friend who played in the band that was playing that night? Did he say did, did police ever question them? 
Yeah, they were questioned. Uh, they were questioned very minimal. In early reports, if you can find stuff on YouTube about you know Ohio State student goes missing, they talk about thoroughly investigating the scene, thoroughly questioning ev- everybody that worked in the bar, and thoroughly questioning the band. And I don't think they thoroughly question anybody, but I do know that they were questioned and. In the cops' mind, they were ruled out. Because one of the big uh, theories for the longest time was, well, I think he hung out with the band, and then something happened, and then the band knocked him out and put him in a case. <laughs> you know, Now, music for years, there's not that many cases that you're going to be able to put a 6-1 you know, guy into. Well, and typically on sets like that, any case that's that big is that big because it's full of stuff. So if you had a person in there, then you'd have a bunch of stuff without a case. Right. Yeah. So unless they were playing in this all along and they brought a separate case to put a body in. But like I said, I know I've known these guys for years and played on records with them, played in bands with them. They're, they're just not those guys. Uh, I mean, the guitar player was when he found out one, Oh, you have a podcast. He didn't even know I had a podcast. Uh, he was excited for me. Oh, your show is, you know, somewhat successful. And he's like, you know, yeah, I was there. And um, he's like, but it was no big deal at the time. And I was like, well, do you remember talking to him? And he's like, you know me. If you don't have, this is what he said, not what I said. He's like, if you don't have tits and ass, I don't care. And that's that was his reply to me. And I was like, well, Brian didn't have tits or an ass. Well, maybe he had a little bit of an ass, but um. So, you know, this, this guy was an amazing guitar player that people came up to all the time and it was like, hey, man, great show, or I love your guitar playing. So is it possible that Brian shook his hand or said something to him that night? Yeah. And I really think it it's most likely this small group of people that were leaving together to go to a party and they get into a confrontation or a small little confrontation. One of their f- female friends gets into with this unknown guy, I really believe that unknown guy was Brian. It certainly makes sense. It's a hell of a coincidence if it wasn't. Well, and the guy that played guitar, he was a couple years older than me, but when I started playing gigs with him, he was very, you know, very meticulous. The way he uh, would load his gear in and the way he would load his gear out had a system every place he played. And he had this uh, black Ford Explorer, and he would always pull it around, you know, to the alley or somewhere close so he didn't have to carry his stuff that far. And so what he can remember from, you know, now it seems like uh, 20 years ago, but it's a little less than that, um, 14 years ago, is he, he remembers pulling his car around. He remembers what alley he pulled into, right where there would be some supposedly cameras, which police have never showed those cameras, because why not you, Why not show the cameras that show the band loading up? If there's some suspicion that the band knocked this guy out and put him into a tub and carried him out, why not show the video footage of the band loading their instruments in? I don't think there's a camera there. Even though they claim there was, why not show it? But what my buddy was telling me and what the other bandmates were telling me is if they did have that footage, you would have seen 30-some people that left through that back way. 
you know, and that was just not discussed for years. I mean, heck, for a long time, there was no discussion of there even being a back exit way. So it's just one of those, like, you know, rumors, guy walks in the bar and never seen again. And it's like, as the story unfolds, there's a lot more to it. So was the door that went out to the construction zone, I think it was down at the bottom of the escalator, is that, a, is that then a third third door out of the building? Or is that the back door? So, yeah, the back door, basically, there was a path, my buddy said, you know, where they had, a, you know, maybe the flooring wasn't completely done, that they had, you know, like sheets of plywood, just like down on the ground to protect whatever they're, you know, so there was like a pathway, like, like almost like the pathway wasn't even done. It was still under construction a little bit. So that's another thing. People were like, well, did he walk off the construction path and, you know, fall into some cement or did he fall into some wall and did they, did they close in that wall or whatever? I think it wasn't as under construction as people believe. It was almost 100% completely done. It was just that pathway was a little bit of a construction zone, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, and, and the fact that, that neither he, he alive or his body have never been found in 14 years, in my opinion, pretty much rules out that some kind of, that something accidental happened, that, he, you know, he wandered off in the wrong place or something like that. I mean, what do you think about that? Do you, do you think there's any possibility that this was just some horrible accident? Well, no, I mean, it, it very much could be, but once he gets outside, you have the idea that he has to go a few blocks and he goes, he's going to go into a few blocks where it's not, yeah, they were trying to revive the area, make it nicer, but it wasn't the best area. It's not an area that I particularly feel safe walking home. You know, the, the amount of blocks he had to walk home, but, but the story always changes. And it's so funny about who wants to control the narrative. So Clint and Meredith, they go back. Here's what's interesting about them. They go back to Clint was house sitting a condo for a teacher. He was a TA. So they have video footage of him leaving the parking garage with Meredith, right? And then he had to type in a certain code to get into the condo complex. So if you roughly estimate how long that drive would have taken him and Meredith, we can tell that he didn't stop anywhere. They didn't stop to get food. They didn't stop. They didn't run into Brian and, and kill him and throw him into the woods. They didn't have time. From the time they left the garage to the time they got to the condo, it's almost like every second's accounted for. Uh -huh. He takes Meredith back to, this uh, to his teacher's condo. They spend the night there. The story for 10 years, and still from some people to this day, and I get shit on all the time about this, was the story was Clint and Meredith wake up in the morning and I believe Clint's car or Meredith's car, one was parked at Brian's apartment. So the story for years was that Clint and Meredith went back to Brian's apartment to get into the car, you know, get drop off the person to their car. But instead of doing that, they went into Brian's apartment and they were actually in Brian's apartment for a few hours or so. That story is completely, completely a lie. They went back to Brian's apartment, didn't really think much about the fact, you know, that they lost him that night. And, you know, Meredith got in her car and Clint got in his car and they drove their separate ways. 
you know, taking showers, eating lunch, doing whatever. And then they made up, you know, met up later that night to hang out. And that's when they're like, it starts becoming, well, Brian's not, you know, responding to my calls and blah, blah, blah. You know, speaking of the calls, that, that was something that was interesting from what I was reading is it, it seems like there's a lot of misinformation out there. Is it accurate that, that, uh, I don't was it Meredith or his, or Brian's girlfriend that kept trying to call him every day and it would go straight to voicemail. And then one day it actually rang and they, and, it, and they found out that it pinged a tower like 14 miles away from where, where he disappeared from. Yeah. So yeah, that was his girlfriend. Um, at the time she would call pretty much every day. And then one day it rang. Now I don't actually think it was that, that call that pinged. But eventually when they did do um, looking for pings, they found a ping in, in Hilliard, Ohio, which would have been a, you know probably about 10 miles away or so. But that could have just been a fluke, you know? Right. But, but the reason why I bring up the Meredith and, and Clint, the reason why I bring up the fact that, that they claim that they never went into Brian's apartment is because out of all missing person cases, this one, when I talked to police officers and detectives that, that covered this case, I get this weird suspicion that they believe he's alive. And I've had, and I, I don't want to give up sources, but I've had people say, he's not dead. People that I, I find credible. Saying, saying that he's not dead as though they know that he's not dead. Right, like they know that he's not dead, but they can't prove it. and. When it's an adult that goes missing, they have no, they could, they could find the guy. Their only duty to the, to society is to close the case. Now, so we know that they don't have definitive proof that he's alive because they would have to close the case. If that makes any sense. Right. So they don't have to tell the they don't have to tell the family members they don't have to tell the public but they do have to close the case they have that obligation and well at least in most departments do you think he's alive well here's why I bring up the Clint and Meredith story it's because a lot of people go okay well there was reason to believe you know Brian's mother recently died he had um, some difficulties with a relationship with his father. A lot of people believe because Brian two years earlier looked like this rock star, always talked about just being in a band and just touring. And, and he was really into Eddie Vedder. And there was rumors that Eddie Vedder was writing the music to the Alexander Supertramp story uh, called Into the Wild about a kid that disappears and starts a new life and goes off to find himself. And Brian was a mama's boy and was having a really hard time with the fact that his mother passed away. And a lot of people said that he didn't want to be in medical school, that he was doing it just to make his mom and dad happy. But now that she passed away, he was like, why am I doing this? But here's the reason why I bring it up is because when people say, oh, Brian went off and started a new life, right? You go, well, who decides at two o'clock in the morning, piss drunk? Right. That you're you're going to leave and start a new life and decide, oh, by the way, I got to get out of this damn bar without the camera seeing me because that'll be a good ruse. And he also had the plane tickets for the next day to go on vacation. Well, he had the plane a couple days later. Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, I think there was uh, two days in between and then he was going to go. 
But what I think is interesting, or more interesting, is so his friends leave him. Let's say he gets out of the bar just undetected. Uh, he gets back safely to his apartment, falls asleep, then wakes up. And he's still having these thoughts about starting a new life. Well, he doesn't know that the cameras didn't pick him up on that, at that bar. But if he's going, hey, I, I got to go now. If I don't go now, I'm going to have to go on vacation with my girlfriend. And maybe she's expecting me to propose. And I don't want to do that. Well, now I'm out of here. It's possible. But there's a lot of people in the Brian Schaefer community that get mad at me because they say, no, Clint and Meredith went into that apartment and they know for a fact. But I've just heard otherwise by credible sources. Brian's father hired a private investigator. Uh, I've talked to him extensively uh, about different things. And, and, and that's the other thing, too, is <laughs> Brian's father was unabashedly saying Clint was responsible for his son going missing. And, you know, he hired a private investigator to prove that. That's strange to me. Um, it's strange to me that you wouldn't admit that your son might have drank too much. It's weird that you would call these girls names for just talking to your son. That's odd to me. But if I went missing, my mom would tell you one story and my dad would probably tell you the real story, you know? Right. Same with me. Yeah. Yeah, my mom would be like, he lit up every room. And my dad would be like, he turned out all the lights. He was a son of a bitch, you know? You know? Right. No, and so there was, and there's all these far out there rumors about him. But the, one of the reasons why a lot of people believe that possibly he passed away was his dad died in this, we had this crazy windstorm. And, and a handful of people died in this windstorm. And his father was one of them. So people thought, well, if Brian went missing on his own, maybe he'll come back for the funeral. Well, there was um, like a funeral home will have a, a little message book to sign online. Uh, and there was an odd, you know, you know, like, I miss you, dad, or I love you, dad. And it was signed like Puerto Rico or something. The cops claim that they have figured out that that was just a hoax and that was done at a actually like a public library with inside Columbus so it wasn't done from some island but that's that uh, little bit of information really sparked the idea oh this this guy might be alive somewhere else I don't know I don't think that's I think it's m most likely that he got outside the bar we just don't know how or we just don't have the evidence of that and there was some foul play between the bar and his house. To me, that seems like the most logical, you know, because I haven't done obviously nearly the deep dive in the case that you have, but just from what I've been reading and from what we've been discussing, yeah, I think you make a really good point about deciding at two in the morning while you're drunk to start a new life and executing that plan with flawlessly where no one can find you. It seems very unlikely. It seems much more likely to me that, that someone got a hold of it. Right, but that story only makes it less plausible if Clint and Meredith went to his apartment. So then that shortens the time period. So they go to the apartment. He's not there. They're there for a couple of hours. He never shows up. Oh, if he went to start a new life, that means he did it the night before. Well, if Clint and Meredith are telling you, hey, by the way, we didn't, we didn't go into his apartment. We don't know what you're talking about. Then the time period becomes a lot, a lot longer. Nobody was in his apartment. I, I don't think... 
until later that night or the next morning. So is it possible that Brian got home, slept off the the night before, and decided, well, I'm going to take off? And he would have had hours upon hours to do so. I don't know why you'd leave your car behind. I don't know why he would leave his guitar behind. Yeah, and uh, I don't know about you, but after a night of drinking like that, I'm I'm not usually the most energetic the next day to put something like that into place. I'm more likely to lay, just lay around. Yeah, and so I'm going to talk about something that's strange here for a second. I'm not in love with the idea of psychics or like tarot card readings or anything like that. I know detectives use them from time to time. And my father has talked about that, that when he would get to the point that he would use one. And he said that sometimes it was just that you could present, you know, you could just present a picture or whatever. But they might just tell you something that sparks an idea that you just didn't think about before. So he, he, he always thought, like, what do you have to lose, right? And I know Brian and I know a lot of missing person cases where they've tried to use psychics and stuff before. But uh, there was a show called Psychic Kids, and they took them to the Ugly Tuna Saluna. And so, like I said, the, the quick timeline is Brian and Clint went into the Ugly Tuna earlier in the, the night. They had some drinks, went to a couple different bars, and they came back, right? That's important. So these psychic kids are at this location, and they have this adult mentor, right? And one of the psychic kids say, I have a feeling that he was here and left and came back. So what the mentor, what their adult mentor said was, oh, well, good for you. Because Brian went into this bar up the escalator, was in the bar for a little bit, and then stepped out onto this platform to talk to these girls and then went back in the bar. And that's probably what you're feeling. And I kept on thinking, no, you idiot. He's probably thinking Brian went into the bar like earlier in the day, went to a couple bars and then came back. But that kid, that was not highly reported before. It wasn't ever, it wasn't reported often that he was actually in the bar earlier that day. It was just, oh, he went into this bar and, you know, that happened. But I just thought, wow, that's really interesting that this kid picked up on something and his adult mentor is not even explaining it to the kid right on what he picked up, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But multiple kids in that scenario claim that there was somebody watching him all night. And I have always felt here's this good looking guy. It's the start of spring break. If, if there's a predator for this type of individual, where would they go? They're going to go to campus. They're going to go to campuses. We see this all the time. People talking about the smiley face killer theory. You got all these Charlie projects. You got thousands of guys in their 20s that have gone missing. I think there's a certain type of predator for that. And I think this guy, I think Brian was pretty drunk. And I think he was maybe a little cocky, a little arrogant. He was going up to women and just talking to them. And I think there was some, and, and this is what the psychic kids have felt. Uh, they said there was somebody watching him. And I believe that whoever was watching him was jealous 
that they couldn't be that type of person. You know, oh man, this guy, he's, he's good looking. He's this, that he's flirting with women and they become a predator for that type of individual. If that makes sense. Yeah. Wasn't there also a psychic that said something that told the father something about that Brian's body was thrown into a water somewhere? Yeah, and there's a there's a you know a big river, uh, pretty close called the Scioto River. His father looked. A lot of people looked in that area, and I think at one point it was almost drained because they were doing maintenance on it. But his body was never never found. And also, just like if he would have left the bar, even if he was drunk, unless he was trying to head to somebody else's house, you know, maybe an ex-girlfriend or maybe just a girlfriend that he had hookups with, because the river wouldn't be in the direction. He wouldn't have to pass the river to get to his apartment. Before we wrap things up, Captain, is there anything else you want to say about the case? Well, I just think it's really fascinating that it, when you're when you're diving into these cases, don't always take what you see in a paper or what you hear as a hundred percent gospel, because especially in this case, uh, the more that time goes by, the more I find out things are not the way people were trying to make them appear. All right, and then if anybody else wants to hear more about the case. Where on the in the True Crime Garage catalog can they find your work on Brian Schaefer? Uh, we've talked about him a few times, and it, if you just like, go to Stitcher, you can. All of our episodes are available on the Stitcher app for free, all the way from episode one to to now. And uh, we covered him really early on because it's such a popular case in all in Columbus. But we we've done follow ups on it as new information comes out. True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.